Crucify My Love, book one in the Mask of the Gods series, by C.E. Dorset, read by the author. Abbott exited the medical bay, recessed deep within the Imperial cruiser. Blood coated his hands and chest. He nodded to Hikaru and Chewie, who stood against the opposite wall. The doctors are treating Shinobu's wounds, Abbott said. His mouth was dry, his throat parched, speaking hurt. I ordered them not to administer any medications that would keep him asleep or dull his mind. If he can wake up, he can heal himself better than we can. Hikaru stared at the door. He will survive. He is a fighter. Abbott didn't know any words to console them. The winged corpses appeared from nowhere, striking and stabbing Shinobu. They got to him as fast as they could and pulled his body from the melee, but the dead had savaged him. You can't be here, Abbott said. I have duties to attend to, and without my presence, they will arrest you. I will take you to a briefing room and set guards at the door. That should protect you. I will get you word as soon as we know anything. It would be better to send you away from the cruiser, but I can't allow that at this time. He heard Hikaru protest, but Chewie convinced him to follow. Abbott did as he promised, and walked around the corner out of the sight of the guards, and leaned his forehead against the cold metal wall. He had seen nothing like what had just happened. Scintillating vines of pure energy erupted from the lich gate and corded themselves into serpents. They struck each other so violently, lightning arced into the surrounding structures. The battle went on for hours. Neither the red serpent nor the violet one gained the advantage over the other. Then the violet one shattered, like a delicate cup slammed into a wall. That is when he saw Nobu impaled on that thing's spear. Abbott composed himself and walked down the hall and up the stairs to the deck of the cruiser. He joined Quaister Rutham and Curate Cook at the rail looking down at the dark village below. The fog clung to the ground and spiraled into the air, marking what appeared to be skirmishes between the patrolling soldiers and the dead. Are you sure it was wise to bring those foreigners aboard, Jacob? The Quaister said in a businesslike tone. I believe the injured one is our best hope to solve this mystery, sir. Abbott said, never taking his eyes off the village. Faint howls of pain reached them. Our men aren't faring well, the quaester said. The dead are angry at the Thordenkin and taking it out on our forces, Cook said. Perhaps, the quaester said stoically. We expected losses if the stories were true. That coffin could be the source of the phenomenon. If not, it is the current focus. We need to concentrate our efforts there. Quaester Rutham turned and walked away. You messed this one up, Cook said wryly. Your pet Thornkin made the infestation worse. Abbott suppressed his anger and hoped he betrayed no agitation on his face. But we learned a lot from the experience. Light flooded out under the cruiser. Abbott recognized the pattern. The Quaister ordered the Elementalists to charge the mooring chains, so any approaching them would be incinerated. He was afraid. Fear made men dangerous. 
How long do you think the Quaestor will tolerate your failures? Cook asked. Longer than he will your inaction, Abbott smiled at Cook, then turned his back and headed below deck. Cook was unsure of his position. If he wasn't, he would have taunted Abbott while the Quaestor was still there. That boded well for Abbott's future. He pushed the petty politics from his mind. Part of him wished he had the power to help the soldiers in the village, but without a clue what, he had to do nothing. Without a valid reason, he didn't have the authority to recall them. The Quaestor ordered the Moraines charged as much to keep the dead from climbing them as to ensure the soldiers didn't retreat. Death awaited them either way. They might as well stand and fight. The Empire didn't allow its soldiers to study the etheric arts. That privilege was reserved to the elite squads and corps. They couldn't run into the air to escape the dead. Before he realized where he was going, he was outside the medical bay. He opened the doors and entered. The healers stood around Nobu's still limp body, stitching him back together. A woman in a black medical tunic, with her brown hair pulled up into a tight bun, approached him. Horror burned in her green eyes. Abbott recognized her as their chief medic, Dr. Abigail Granger, but he had never seen so much concern cloak her. She saluted without the precision of a soldier and shook her head slowly. We weren't able to heal his wounds, so we had to resort to more mundane treatments. The frustration in her voice matched his own. What do you mean we couldn't heal him? Abbott watched the doctor sewing Nobu up. Our magic refused to reach his wounds. She said in the monotone of a person lost in the woods, I have never seen anything like it, Jacob. Abbott's shoulders tightened for a moment from her informal address. Then he remembered telling her to call him by his name at a reception when they first met. They joined the crew of the Caliber Stone at the same time, and he often felt like she was one of the few people he could trust. The bloody mess stole his memory from him. When he carried Shinobu's limp body to the ship, he thought he was dead already. He felt like a mannequin whose joints were loose. It's almost like whatever energy did this infected the wounds, Granger said. Abby, he has friends in the briefing room. Abbott distanced himself from them in his mind. Please keep them up to date on his prognosis. With your permission, I will stay here. Granger rested a hand on his back. Consider it done. If you need to talk, I will let you know. Abbott walked away from her. The absence of her comforting hand chilled his back. He stopped at a chair out of the way and sat down. He wasn't a religious man, but he prayed to anyone who would listen to help them through this. Shinobu watched the ghostly figure of Sister Death raging at the edge of his blurred vision. Her snowy hair thrashed about as she screamed into the void. Thieves and usurpers! Her voice thundered. No one steals from me. My lady, Shinobu said through the chaotic haze. Am I finally dead? Death rushed him. Her vacant eye sockets bore into his soul. Not yet. She pressed her sharp fingernail into his forehead, and he felt his skull splinter. The pain radiated through his body. His bones burned with a familiar searing heat. A thorn erupted from his forehead where death pressed her finger. It grew, tearing the surrounding flesh. Shinobu wondered if it would grow through his head and sprout out the back. He shivered awake. His wounds burned in the heat from his bones. Something burned. Strangers flocked around him, removing smoldering bandages. They used hooked scissors to cut something. The pain blossomed until it broke into a strange euphoria. Everything faded in and out a couple times. The aching pain of his body told him he might be awake this time. 
Someone had tied gray Shraddha crystals over several points on his body. He had never seen a gray one before. Are you awake? He heard what he thought was Jacob Abbott's voice. Can you see me? The voice said again. Shinobu turned and smiled at Jacob, who stood over him with a concerned look on his face. Death doesn't want me, Shinobu said. Tears clouded his eyes, then ran down his cheeks. I am glad for that, Jacob said. She is angry, Shinobu sobbed. I think she's mad at me. Why would death be mad at you? Jacob leaned closer. I failed her. Shinobu realized Jacob held his hand. I tried to return what was stolen, and I failed. You were stabbed in the back by one of those things before the others pounced you. Shinobu saw real concern in Jacob's eyes. The curate's lips quivered when he spoke. How delightfully strange. Where am I? I brought you to the cruiser for medical attention. He presented a challenge to our healers. Jacob almost smiled. I brought Hikaru and Chewie aboard with you, but after the first day, it was too dangerous to keep them on the ship. I have kept them up to date on your progress, though. How long have I been here? Shinobu asked. Six days, a woman said to his left. Jacob smiled. This is Dr. Abigail Granger, our master healer. She's been looking after you. The woman had her brown hair pulled back in a tight bun and wore a black tunic. May I ask if your thorns are usually black? Shinobu reached up and ran his finger across the thorn protruding from his forehead. They're usually yellow, white, like bone? And do they continue to grow over time? Dr. Granger said. No, they only grow when I use my powers to heal. Shinobu didn't understand why this thorn was different, but his mind was clouded. Granger probably gave him something to dull his pain, and that affected his mind. Jacob asked Abby, as he called her, to send a message to Ikaru and Chui to tell them he had awakened. Her footsteps walked away. A door opened and closed and she was gone. Jacob still held his hand. Shinobu scrutinized the curate's face. Are you alright? Jacob's bottom lip quivered. I wasn't hurt. Shinobu's pulse raced. Thank you so much for saving me when you didn't have to. I could have stopped you from trying, Jacob said, and I did have to. He glanced furtively around the room, then whispered, You are the first person in a long time to treat me with respect, not fear or reverence. You don't know how rare that is for someone like me. A single tear threatened to escape his blue-green eyes. I had to repay that kindness. Shinobu's cheeks warmed. He was glad he was there. You don't treat me like a monster or a porcelain doll. That is rare, especially since I am a monster. You are not, and I don't want to hear you say that again. I would prefer you didn't even think it, but I wouldn't presume to tell you what to think. Shinobu experienced something he had never felt before. A void in his chest ached, pulling cords of burning anticipation throughout his arms. He wanted to hold Jacob, not hug him, but hold him. He said nothing and hoped Jacob couldn't tell. He didn't know what to do with these feelings. So he pushed them down. Lying in bed, he lost himself in Jacob's blue-green eyes and held his hand. This was enough. A touch without fear or expectation. It made him feel practically human. Chapter 10 Flesh and Steel Abbott exited the medical bay. He had duties to perform on ship before his night watch started, but he didn't want to do any of them. 
His mind bustled with thoughts about Nobu, thoughts he couldn't afford. It was impossible for him to get close to anyone on his career path. His father taught him that. Emotions were nothing more than entanglements your rivals could use against you. Abbott learned that when he was eight. One of his father's rivals in the Witten kidnapped him to coerce his vote. Lord Griffin Abbott didn't negotiate. The kidnappers would have killed him if he hadn't escaped. He took a month to get back inside his family compound because his father told the guards that he was dead and that the vagabond is an imposter trying to weasel his way out of the gutter. If his mother hadn't found him first, after he snuck onto the family estate, the guards would have killed him. His father still had him poked and prodded by more medical adepts than he ever knew existed to verify his identity. After all that, Lord Griffin Abbott wasn't proud of his son's resourcefulness. Jacob performed his duty to the family. Duty was the least someone could expect of anyone. In time, Jacob saw the wisdom in his father's ways. Attachment threatened his father's position and irreparably harmed the family or the empire. If he had to die, that was a small price compared to the alternative. And now the insidious face of attachment had shown itself in Nobu's eyes. He had to quash it before he entangled himself in a situation that would only weaken him. Feelings of this sort rose in him before, but they were never with someone he had worked with so closely. They might be harder to fight, given the circumstances, but they would die all the same. Abbott couldn't afford to give Curate Cook anything to use against him. Foreign entanglements would be the perfect way for him to derail the course of honors. Unlike his father, Abbott aimed higher than the Witten. He would lead the Empire one day. He laid the groundwork. All he had to do was continue up the course. The next step was Quaister, then proconsul of an important territory. The path was clear. His meeting with his Praetorian Guard and subordinate squad leaders went as planned. Since the dead rose anywhere, they could not take or hold ground. Nine soldiers died in the combat, but none had returned with the army of the dead. Curate Cook ordered his squad to continue engaging the dead, but Abbott had his on Welkin cycles, hovering over the village, marking the locations where the dead rose on a map. The seven days of observations showed the dead rose in several clustered locations in a pattern that got densest closest to the lake where the red crystal coffin emerged. Abbott ordered his elementalists to conduct a survey of the water. If there was a single cause for the days of the dead, it made sense they might find it at the bottom of the lake. After he dismissed them, Abbott lingered in the briefing room. Every fiber of his being longed to go back to the medical bay and see Nobu. He resisted. Someone knocked on the door. Dr. Abby Granger stood in the doorway with a folder in her hands. Do you have a moment? She said. Is this about your patient? No, Abby said. She walked in and tossed the folder on the table. My medics and I conducted a survey of the creatures invading the village, and I thought it would be better to share it with you rather than Cook. Abbott smiled. What have you found? We use our powers to see the inner workings of a patient, so I thought it would be interesting to try that with the so-called dead. Since we haven't been able to examine one in a controlled environment, our findings were achieved at a distance and should be seen as preliminary. Understood. What did your study show? Abby cleared her throat. Those things aren't corpses. While I know that has been speculated, I can confirm at least that much. Their bones appear to be elemental metal, and their skin elemental wood. They appear to have more in common with an artificer's construct, like the Great Sphinx of Pathar, than they do with anything 
called by a summoner. They're constructs? Abbott glanced from the folder to the map. Do you think there is an artificer behind this? No, Abby said. Constructs are connected to their artificer by etheric threads. There are no threads here. That is why I made the connection to the Sphinx, which outlived its artificer and still exists to this day. Have you discussed your findings with Marianne Groves yet? Technically, she is not within my realm of authority, and I did not want to step out of bounds. Abbott understood the instinct to preserve one's position, but the ship's artificer was under his purview. Let's bring your findings to Marianne. Hikaru stood on the bow of their airship Kurenai and watched the village below. The sun set on the horizon, and from this height cast a golden glow over everything. Six days passed since the Sawyers allowed him to see Shinobu. They wouldn't even let him board their cruiser. It was too soon to consider Shinobu a prisoner. After a couple more days, he would have no choice but to assume they held his brother against his will. He and Chui stayed on the Kirinai since they were asked to leave the Imperial cruiser. It gave them a better vantage point to observe not only the village, but the Sawyers. Over the last couple days, Chewie finished building something he called a Nimbus Break. It conjured a small cloud fixed in the air by ether threads to the ground. The ship then moored to the cloud. Without the chain to the ground, they didn't have to worry about the dead climbing on board. Hikaru took a minute to marvel at his friend's ingenuity. The idea went from drafting table to constructed device so fast. Artificers practiced an art so far beyond his understanding, it felt like a step beyond magic. Chewie knelt beside the new Nimbus brake, tinkering with its mechanisms. Do you think the Sawyers might commandeer the device if they notice it? Ikaru said as he walked over to him. I thought about that, Chewie said. He didn't look up but continued working on the brake. That is why I set our engines to station keeping and left them running. I'm loosing our moorings so we'll float around enough to make them think we are trying to stay in place on our own power. Genius, Hikaru said. I want to go over to the cruiser and get Shinobu back. I will not visit you in prison, Chewie chuckled. Hikaru agreed there was a better than average chance they would arrest him if he tried to board the Sawyer cruiser, but he couldn't do nothing. We have to do something. It's called waiting, Chewie said. It is hard, but it is the option we have. There is no point fighting the dead. They come back the next day. We need to be patient and come up with a plan. Ikaru's chest tightened and his face warmed. The tips of his fingers froze. He really couldn't do anything in this situation. They would either release Shinobu or not. Two people against a whole garrison of Sawyer troops. They would be slaughtered. He hated not being able to intervene. His inability to save his brother was a failing on his part. The words of Yasu Ishii passed through his mind. Family is the choice forged of blood and steel. Shinobu wasn't the born child of his mother and father, but he was more than family than they had ever been. They grew up together and took care of each other. While their parents squabbled and complained about how the world held them down, he and Shinobu fought for their dreams. They fought, scraped by, and struggled to get their own airship so they would be free to explore their own ambitions. It was rarely easy, but even through the hard times, they were there for each other. In those years, Chewie joined their family, and the three of them took on the world. He felt the blood and steel Ishii wrote about. How was he supposed to accept Shinobu was beyond their help? 
Wouldn't it be better to risk life in a Sawyer labor camp or forced servitude to reunite their family? Whatever he did, he needed a plan. Just rushing over to the Sawyer cruiser and demanding to see his brother served no purpose. They would either send him away or arrest him. Hikaru leaned against the rail of the Kiranai and watched the dead rise throughout the village. A golden light near the lich gate caught his attention. A dark shadow appeared within the halo. The form of an emaciated corpse, with a long blade in each hand, danced in the glow. There was no way a dead blade dancer rose tonight. None of the dead exhibited signs they had been adepts in life. Nightmarish screeching filled the night. The sound of broken glass mingled with a scratching, guttural roar. The light vanished. Chewie, Hikaru said, get your weapon. We may have a new problem. What happened? Chewie asked. I think I just witnessed the rise of a blade dancer. Hikaru shivered. Chewie leaned over the rail next to him. The links in his iron whip rattled from his belt. Together, they watched the shadowy figure in the red light of the Lich Gate leap into the air and run from rooftop to rooftop towards the Sawyer Cruiser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mask of the Gods, Book 1, Crucify My Love. If you would like to read along, or read ahead, the ebook and paperback are available at Amazon.com. You can find more information on the world in the series at Ashdancer.com. You can also find out more on my daily podcast, Project Shadow, available in most podcast directories, or go to projectshadow.com. If you would like to support this work directly, down in the show notes you'll see a link for community support. If you click that link, you can help at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. That money helps support everything that I do, including producing more audiobooks like this. Thank you so much for your time. If you want to hit me up on Twitter, I'm C.E. Dorset. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like me to discuss about this book, please go to anchor.fm and download the Anchor app. Follow Mask of the Gods. And at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a button that says Voice Message. Keep it clean so I can use it on the show, and I would love to answer your questions. Again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, don't forget to have the fun.